Hello everybody, it's me, Carrie Mercer, with another episode of Christmas Book Review. We're up to episode 9 today. So, first I want to thank my first Patreon supporters, Chris, Angie, Lisa, Sharon, and Susie. You are all amazing. Susie is a librarian, and that makes me feel so good to get some props from one of my heroes, because, you know, all librarians rock, right? Yes. Okay, so this episode, I get to tell you about four books, and one of them is going on my top five list, because it was so awesome. So are you ready? Okay, the four books are... Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. This is nonfiction, obviously a review book of Christmas movies. This is it. This is the one that's going on my top five list. It got a 10 out of 10. It's fabulous. The next one is Murder Served Simply, which is a cozy mystery. That was really lame. I gave that a 6 out of 10. Next is Under the Tree, The Toys and Treats That Made Christmas Special, 1930 to 1970. This is a nonfiction book, and that one was an 8 out of 10. That was really fun. And lastly is Pick a Pine Tree, which is a kid's picture book, and that got a 9 out of 10. That was also really fun. Okay, so let me dive into the details here. First up is Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. This is by Alonzo Duralde. It was published in 2010 and was published by Limelight Editions, an imprint of the Hal Leonard Corporation. Alonzo actually sent me this book to review, and I am so glad I thought I knew Christmas movies, but really I knew nothing. I thought I was kind of hip because Christmas in Connecticut is one of my favorite Christmas movies. And I thought, you know, it's black and white, it's old, it's not home alone. But really, I had no idea of the depth of Christmas movies out there. And it was just a joy to discover I could not finish reading this book before starting to watch some of these movies that I'd never heard of. So it took me a while to finish the book because of that. The Dead was the first one I watched, and it was sweet and beautiful and true, and it made me cry. It's from James Joyce's short story of the same name. And what interested me about Duralde's description of the movie was his observation that, quote, Christmas movies are often about families dealing with secrets of the past, and the dead brilliantly examines the reverberations that early events from our lives have on later days, unquote. But I get ahead of myself. So, Duralde divides up the Christmas movies in this book into one of several categories, giving the reader a very manageable nine chapters, and they are as follows. One, with the kids jingle belling, Christmas movies for kids. Two, 
nestled all snug in their beds, Christmas movies for grown-ups. Three, like a bowl full of jelly, Christmas comedies. Four, a blue, blue Christmas, holiday tearjerkers. Five, putting the heist back in Christmas, crime and action extravaganzas. Six, there'll be scary ghost stories, holiday horror. Seven, Scrooge-a-Palooza, a Christmas Carol on film. Eight, the worst Christmas movies ever, lumps of coal in your cinema stocking. And nine, just like the ones I used to know, Christmas classics. Then there is an appendix of movie titles that did not make the cut for one of several reasons, but even here he puts an asterisk on the titles that he recommends, just not necessarily for Christmas. After that appendix, there are two indexes, one of names, actors, writers, directors, etc., and one of movie and show titles that are either reviewed or mentioned in a review of another film. For example, Full Metal Jacket is in this index because it's mentioned in the review of Eyes Wide Shut. Director Kubrick does this self-referential thing where he puts a VHS tape of Full Metal Jacket, another of his films, in view in the main character's apartment in Eyes Wide Shut. So, as you can see, Duralde is very thorough, which is really fun for film geeks. Uh, I think I just called myself a film geek, but that's okay. For each movie, Duralde gives you a consistent detailing of the year it was released, the MPAA rating, if there is one, the runtime, the writer, which is usually plural, the director, and actors, and the company that owns the film, like the Criterion Collection or Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, which should help you find it. If he did a second edition today, I wonder if you would replace this with Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, etc., since we all stream movies so much now. So after these details, he gives us a synopsis of the film with his own take on it and how it succeeds or fails to celebrate the spirit of Christmas. For example, one of the films I recently watched, besides The Dead, on Duralde's recommendation was Millions. It's about two little boys who are brothers and are facing their first Christmas without their recently deceased mother. The younger boy, Damien, is obsessed with Catholic saints since his mother died, and he sees them and talks to them all the time. One day, while he's chatting with St. Clair of Assisi, as one does, a gym bag full of money drops seemingly from the heavens into his cardboard fort. Now, Damien wants to give the money away to the poor because he thinks the money came from God. His brother, Anthony, wants to spend it. Duralde describes the film as, quote, a charming and eccentric tale of youngsters getting through their grief while facing a decidedly hairy situation. Millions tells you everything you want to hear about love, family, and generosity at Christmas time, 
without ever beating you over the head with it, unquote. He also discusses the director and how this is a departure from his usual fare. It was enough to get me to watch the movie, and I felt like his description was accurate and on point. It's a quiet film, but really worth the time, and different from your typical Christmas classic, which was just what I wanted. His fun facts for each movie are about everything from how much some actor made for a movie, like Macaulay Culkin for Home Alone 1 made a paltry $110,000, versus Home Alone 2, for which he was paid $4.5 million, to the dress Hermione wore in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which took three months and a dozen yards of chiffon to make to the tidbit that the scene in Die Hard where the baddie Hans Gruber fools McLean into thinking he's a hostage was added by the director after he found out that actor Alan Rickman could do a super convincing American accent. Giraldi has been a film critic for decades and has done commentaries on several film DVDs. In other words, he's got lots of film cred. Currently, he does several podcasts, including Linoleum Knife with his husband, Dave White, and Who Shot Ya with producer Drea Clark, writer, writer April Wolf, and comedian Ify Nawadawe. One chapter I want to linger over a little is Chapter 7, Scrooge-a-Palooza, which is all about the many adaptations of Dickens' immortal story, A Christmas Carol. You might think this would be a dull chapter, but on the contrary, it's quite entertaining. He starts off by pointing out that there will be many plot spoilers in the following reviews because, excuse me, the story is almost 200 years old. So if you've been living under a rock and don't want spoilers, Geraldi warns, then skip down to the rating section of each review. The reviews are then divided into the traditional adaptations, the musicals, the modernized ones, and the animated ones. Since the plots of these movies are all from the same story, he does something a little different than in the rest of the chapters. For each review, he describes the setting first, which ranges from grimy, gloomy London to simultaneously snowing and sunny, and then he describes the actors in the major roles and how convincing or original their takes are. In particular, how annoying Tiny Tim is. One is typically described as, quote, the usual simpering tot, unquote. And a piece of memorable dialogue and a descriptive rating. I noticed throughout the book that one of the motifs that catches Duralde's eye in a Christmas movie is the Christmas setting or scene, like the Yule Ball in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, or the many Christmas dinner scenes in Fanny and Alexander. And this is because of how they capture Christmas, how each scene captures Christmas, like a portable snow globe for your memory. This feels super appropriate to me for reviewing a visual medium. 
The book clocks in at a very reasonable 260 pages. It's not an encyclopedia. It's a curated collection, which in my mind makes it much more valuable. It's also a really entertaining read. Of course, beyond reading the book, it's already given me several hours of Christmas cheer watching new-to-me Christmas movies. And there are so many more to watch. If you are any kind of Christmas fan, you need this book. Seriously, if I didn't already get to keep this copy, I would go buy it. And I just submitted a recommendation that my library purchase at least one copy as well. This is one of my favorite books so far that I've reviewed for the podcast. And it's also made me realize that I need to start a database for the books I've reviewed. I haven't quite figured out how to do that yet, but I definitely will so that you can search or browse for particular titles that I've reviewed and find which episode to listen to them in. So that's going to take some doing, but just know that it is in my plans. And again, that was Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. So moving on to the next book, it is called Murder Served Simply, an Amish Quilt Shop Mystery by Isabella Allen, published in 2014 by Penguin. I gave this a 6 out of 10 because it was basically lame. (laughs) Okay, so here's the story. Angie has recently, in the last year, I think, moved from Dallas to a small town in Ohio's Amish country called Rolling Brook and her parents and ex-fiance are coming to visit, and she's not happy about it. Her shop is called Running Stitch, which I thought was pretty boring. I mean, it's not even a pun. Come on. So there's a sleigh carrying people between stops on a progressive dinner and then to a play, which sounds like a fun adventure. I've never done a progressive dinner before. Somebody invite me to one. Anyway, Angie is meeting her parents and ex when they arrive at her store, which is the soup stop on the progressive dinner. When her parents arrive, her dad gives her a hug, but her mom asks, couldn't you have worn a dress for the play? This tells you a lot about their relationships in just a few words, so that was a nice job there. Angie is thinking about how the Amish don't put up Christmas trees and how they do things so modestly, and she wonders what they would think of her parents' usual tree. Quote, Dad always said it wasn't worth putting up a Christmas tree unless you could see it from space. Unquote. So there is some humor here. It's not completely dry. Ryan Dickinson is her ex-fiancé, and I can't even remember now why she left him, if it was some precipitating event like he cheated on her. Maybe that was it. Uh, Also, he was just a jerk and didn't appreciate her, which, you know, that's enough. Okay, so another character is Martha Yoder. She is the owner of Authentic Amish Quilts, which is right next door to Angie's shop. And Martha is a former employee of Angie's and is now in direct competition with her I mean, could you get any more direct than being right next door? She's very snotty and snobby and judgy, 
and a backstabber as she tries to steal one of Angie's other employees by offering her a job. But Martha and Angie have to work together during this story because there's a quilt show happening at the Swiss Valley Hotel where many visitors are staying for the Christmas holiday. And it's also where the progressive dinner ends up. Angie doesn't seem to have a problem working with Martha, but Martha is being difficult and really bitter in the things that she says to Angie, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me since she's not the one who was burned in the relationship. Angie was. After the dinner is over at the hotel, which Angie attends so she can be with her parents and her ex, I guess. After that is over, they all go to the play, which is on the same site. It's just over in the barn next to the hotel. And the play is called An Amish Christmas. There's a lot of controversy about the play in the Amish community for two reasons. They don't trust that the English will portray Amish life respectfully or fairly. And two, the lead actress is a former Amish who left the community recently to become an actress. And now she's back just for this acting part. Evidently, her sister alerted her to the opportunity, even though her family is not supposed to be having any further contact with her since she left the community. There's an old man who has been protesting the play outside the barn where the play is taking place, and he's been yelling about it being an abomination. Angie wonders about this person because Amish disapprove of much of English culture, but usually they do so quietly, whereas this guy actually spits in her face. So then later she finds out that this old man is actually the lead actress's uncle. So he sort of has even more of a reason to protest. So Angie has a little Frenchie dog named Oliver and everyone loves him and he's actually my favorite character, which was not a super high bar to get over, but whatever. He has his own little travel kit that she keeps in her SUV for him. Like, she pulls out a Christmas sweater and booties for him at the hotel, and the owner is fine with her bringing the dog into the hotel. Oliver doesn't love the reindeer sweater, but at least Angie doesn't make him wear the antlers. He hates the antlers. So we get a little bit of Angie's backstory. She grew up somewhat in this Amish community, this particular Amish community, and even though her parents are not and were not Amish, her aunt was, and this particular aunt was like a second mother to her, and I think she has just died, like, in, maybe in the previous book in this series. So there's her aunt that she had a connection with, and a lot of her friends were Amish that she grew up with. So she knows a lot about this community, but at the same time, she's got something of an outsider's viewpoint, having been gone for so long and also still not being Amish, which seems like a good setup for the writer to tell the reader about the Amish without it seeming artificial in the story. 
the murder victim ends up being the lead actress, of course. And it happens right in the middle of the play when she falls from some scenery and the fall kills her. So that's dramatic and interesting. Angie immediately sticks her nose in and starts talking to people about the dead girl. Sheriff James Mitchell is her new boyfriend because that's how it is in Cozy's. The protagonist is always partners or dating some law enforcement type so that they can help solve the murder. So Angie keeps putting off her parents and her ex-boyfriend while she's investigating the murder. And it seems kind of rude. Her ex keeps wanting to talk to her in private, and she says there is nothing left to talk about, which seems reasonable. So he seems kind of pushy. And also her mother is super pushy as she's the one who brought the ex along on this trip. It was like her idea, even though her mother knows that Angie broke up with him, but she's not accepting that because for some reason she thinks this guy is a good catch. Maybe he looks good. Mom is not real likable because of this. The middle of the book is kind of boring because it's just Angie going to talk to people here and there that she shouldn't be talking to. She should be letting the police handle it. And she puts herself in danger. And then she just goes reporting to Sheriff Boyfriend, who is not pleased with her investigating, but nonetheless uses the information that she finds. So when the murder mystery is eventually solved, it's a really uninteresting motive and the culprit doesn't really fit with the whole Amish culture that we're supposedly learning about from Angie. And I just didn't care enough. I got bored. It was hard to finish this story and not fall asleep. The back of the book claims, quote, includes quilting tips, unquote which is bunk. The only thing remotely resembling any directions about quilting is the very last page that's titled Guest Article for the Holmes County Tourism Board that is a scant paragraph basically saying, hey, why not make a quilted snowman? But wait, I thought this was the last page. Then I looked closer at the inside of the binding of the book and found that someone had ripped out a page or pages with the pattern. What a crap person to rip pages out of a library book. Bad karma, dude. This is the risk I take, I guess, sometimes with getting library books. Still, even if the pattern had been there, there's no quilting tips. Maybe it was a good pattern, but there's no tips. And the story was still just so meh. So I'm giving it a 6 out of 10. Again, that was Murder Served Simply. So next is Under the Tree, The Toys and Treats That Made Christmas Special, 1930 to 1970. This book is by Susan Wagoner, I reviewed one of hers in episode one. Um, this is a different one. It was published in 2007 by Abrams Publishing, and I gave it an 8 out of 10. I really liked it. 
So she starts out with a short intro where she briefly discusses the development of the idea of Christmas and then specifically the idea of giving children toys on Christmas. Of course, the publication of Clement Clark Moore's poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, was a big turning point, mainly because it changed the image of Santa from the European St. Nick, a thin, serious religious figure who gave charity to the poor, to the American Santa, a jolly, rotund fellow who gave toys to good children everywhere. So I noticed there's lots of statistics throughout the book on little sidebars, and this is similar to her previous books that I've seen. For instance, money spent annually on toys in America. In 1924, that number was 100 million, more than I would have thought. In 1945, that had doubled to 200 million. And in 1968, it jumped exponentially to 2 billion. And then in 2005, it was $22.9 billion. A lot. I wonder what it is now. So the first chapter is on dolls because they have been a toy for children for thousands of years. They're not just a modern toy. But when mass producing of dolls became possible in the 20th century, toy makers had to get really creative to outdo each other, which led to lawsuits. There is a particular lawsuit she discusses between a company called F&B that made the Didy doll who drank from a bottle and wet her diapers and the Ideal Company who made Betsy Wetsy who basically did the same thing. The legal ruling was that, quote, drinking and wetting could not be patented, unquote. People will try to patent anything. So, in the 1930s, Shirley Temple was the biggest thing in movies, and Wagoner says that, quote, no human image before or since has appeared on so many toys, unquote, but especially as dolls, whether cloth, paper, porcelain, or soft plastic. The 50s and 60s were evidently the golden age of dolls, and they ranged in size from pocket-sized Mattel's Little Kittles to life-size, and the age of the dolls ranged from baby to a doll like Sissy, a full-figured, high-heeled fashion doll from Madame Alexander. And there were some interesting ones, like Pitiful Pearl, who came out in 1958. I'm putting a picture of this on my Instagram for Christmas Book Review because she is just so creepy looking. <laughs> I couldn't resist. And of course, there's Barbie, who was wildly popular from her inception in 1959. There was Chatty Cathy, who my sister actually had one of those my older sister, uh, and her recorded phrases, which were activated by a pull string, were voiced first by June Foray, who was also the famous voice of Rocky the Squirrel in Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. Later, Chatty Cathy was voiced by Maureen McCormick, who was, of course, Marsha in The Brady Bunch. 
To compete with the plastic dolls, paper doll manufacturers had to make their dolls more glamorous. So they started making celebrity and movie star dolls of such stars as Rita Hayworth, Debbie Reynolds, and Elizabeth Taylor. The next chapter is on toy trains and other vehicles, and Wagoner makes this bewilderingly sexist statement that even though some girls like to play with trains, they were really meant for boys. Wow! So, the first toy trains were propelled by a wind-up mechanism, which I did not know. I guess they were not electric in the beginning. Lionel Train was started in 1900. They quickly became the most wanted toy for Christmas by children and also dads. They were very expensive, though. In 1937, a new Hudson locomotive set from Lionel cost as much as a refrigerator. Ouch. Wagoner makes a really interesting observation, though, about the interruption of toy making during the war years and the Depression. Quote, little boys who during the Depression had never gotten the train of their dreams made sure their sons did and joined them in what quickly became one of the country's leading hobbies, unquote. So I thought that was really interesting as to why dads were so into trains, too. Of course, I don't know if that continues to explain why dads are into trains. I don't think so. So during the war years, toy manufacturers, of course, made war toys like tanks, submarines, and battleships, but they had to make it out of non-rationed materials like wood and cardboard, so I don't think they were that great. Then the second half of the chapter is about toy cars, which started about the same time as real automobiles came into production. Interesting, didn't know that. The first toy cars were called Tootsie Toys in the 1920s and were very small, just a few inches long. It wasn't until 1947 that large vehicles called Tonka Toys started being manufactured. I remember having a yellow dump truck that was a Tonka, which was at one time the best-selling toy truck in America. Matchbox cars started in 1954, and those were the precursor to Hot Wheels, of which I had many. Hot Wheels were at first just fantasy sports cars, but they soon branched out into all kinds of vehicles. Slot cars were evidently super popular in America in the 1960s, but she doesn't go into detail about these, and I know absolutely nothing about slot cars, so sorry. Lastly in this chapter on toy vehicles is a discussion of model kits and how they progressed from being made only of balsa wood to being made of plastic, which made it possible to have very realistic details. The next chapter is on board games which is really special to me because I was always a big fan of board games. And in the 1970s, my family had a whole closet full of board games. I'm still a big board game fan, and we, my family belongs to a large meetup group that has several big get-togethers a year, 
as well as weekly meetings for more specific subgroups. And actually, as I record this, my son is waiting for me to finish so that we can play a board game. Our newest game is Jaws. Yes, like the movie. It's made by Ravensburger, the German board game company, and it's supposed to be really well done. But I haven't played it yet, so I can't review it. So, back to the book. One of the most popular gifts of the mid-20th century was board games. Historically, most board games were abstract simulations of conquest or war and appealed mostly to men. Then, games were made in the second half of the 19th century to appeal to women and children as they were intended as teaching tools for children to learn to make moral choices. Now, gameplay did not always go as the designer planned, as one creator found out when she created the landlord's game, intended to, quote, demonstrate the ills caused by the unequal distribution of wealth. Instead of learning compassion for the poor, players schemed to accumulate larger piles of wealth, unquote. If you haven't guessed already, this is the game that was the precursor to Monopoly, which would debut 30 years later. Nowadays, designers have figured out how to better channel gameplay to moral decisions, I think, as there are so many cooperative games where the players have to work together in order to win. We have several of those. Chinese checkers, originally called Hopching checkers, is a totally racist creation by a designer who played on Americans' infatuation with Chinese and Japanese culture in the 1920s. There is nothing Chinese or ancient about the game of Chinese checkers. You don't really see it that much anymore either, which is good. Interestingly, Monopoly was a bestseller in the years after the Depression. The plump little gentleman in Monopoly is said to be partly based on J.P. Morgan, the biggest robber baron of his time. So games that had been played on expensive wooden boards in the past were reissued during the Depression with inexpensive cardboard boards. And this helped to make them much more popular. The most popular game of the 50s and 60s was Candyland, which had no moral lesson. It was just fun. And Risk was another of the most popular ones at that time. And this was sort of the opposite, a war simulation game invented by the French filmmaker Albert Lamorice. I probably slaughtered that name, sorry. But he was the one who made the famous film The Red Balloon. So, interesting. Another sexist thing that Wagner says is that, quote, the number of pieces involved made the game especially intriguing to boys. She's talking about risk there. I don't understand this reasoning. Why does the number of pieces make it more interesting to boys in particular? One interesting development that affected toys was the changing structure of the American house. Rooms were more open and less formal, and many people had a rec room that was specifically for playing games, or at least playtime for the children. 
This led manufacturers to make miniatures of toys that were usually only found outside the home. Bowling pins and balls, pinball, pint-sized pool tables, etc. The next chapter, called Just Like Mom and Dad, is all about toys made for role-playing, like the Easy Bake Oven and other homemaker toys. There were also career toys like dentist and doctor sets. And, of course, typewriters for future secretaries. Insert eye roll. There's also the toys that fed the cowboy mania of the 1930s through the 50s that coincided with Hollywood's Western movie period. So, not quite a career, but definitely role-playing. The next chapter is called It's a Small, Small World, and this is about dollhouses, but also other miniatures of farms, towns, frontier forts. G.I. Joe appears in this chapter, and please note that he was never called a doll. No, he was called a, quote, movable soldier, unquote. He came out in 1964 and capitalized on the popularity of westerns waning and war shows becoming more popular, shows like Hogan's Heroes, which I watched in reruns in the 1970s. G.I. Joe was only made for four years, although the manufacturer tried to bring it back a few times later. The reason for its initial decline in popularity was, of course, Vietnam. So the last few pages of this chapter is dedicated to building toys. The Erector set was brought out in 1912, and it was the first toy to have its own ad campaign, which was, Hello Boys Make Lots of Toys. Is that ever lame? Tinker Toys came out in 1913, and Lincoln Logs came out in 1932 not long before westerns became popular and triggered a nostalgic romance with America's frontier past. I had an unfortunate experience with Lincoln Logs. A roof piece got lodged in my mouth when I was really little and I was running. Of course, you're not supposed to run with things in your mouth, but I did. And I fell, and I had to have stitches, and it was awful. So, not good memories of Lincoln Logs. Legos came out in 1958. So the chapter after this is called, Where All the Children Are Above Average. And this is all about lesson-based toys. The chemistry set, microscope, and other science sets were toys that were very popular after World War II when the idea that technology was the key to beating Russians became popular. So naturally, we wanted to train our children to learn technology and science. There were also toys that taught musical scales, architecture, and art. The Etch-A-Sketch came out in 1960. The Spirograph in 65, and Light Bright in 69. DIY craft kits were also really popular, including the most popular one for boys, Mattel's Creepy Crawlers Thing Maker, which came out in 1964. It used something called Plastigoop, 
that's all one word, plastigoop, and molds to make worms, spiders, and bugs. This thing maker is actually still in production today, but it's a 3D printer and it's very spendy. There were also jewelry making kits, um, an Indian moccasin kit, Indian beaded belt kits, probably popular the same time the Lincoln Logs were along with the Western movie craze. There were also tool kits like the Power Mite kits with balsa wood and tiny power tools, including a circular saw and a router. That came out in 1969. The next chapter is called Take That Thing Outside, and it is all about outdoor toys, everything from bikes and wagons to stilts and pogo sticks. The next to the last chapter is called Six Can't Be Categorized mouthful. Six Can't Be Categorized Classics. The first one is Color Forms. I don't know if they still have these anymore. I know I had a lot of color forms and I loved them. I had Snoopy Peanuts color forms and I remember in particular a Cookie Monster's Kitchen color form. This is too many C words. Cookie Monster's Kitchen Color Forms with lots of baking implements. Okay, so the next one was Mr. Machine, which was a wind-up robot. And Wagoner again steps in it saying, even girls loved it. Even though girls weren't supposed to like mechanical gizmos, I can't stand it. Couldn't she have put it differently, like, to the surprise of marketers, girls liked Mr. Machine or something not so sexist? Jeez. Okay, and the next one was Mr. Potato Head, who, of, of course, we still have today, although you're no longer required to use real potatoes. Rock'em Sock'em Robots. I was not allowed to play with that. <laughs> <laughs> the Rocking Horse, which is still alive today, I guess you could say. And the Viewmaster. Do people still buy those? I don't know. I still have one, mostly with old reels from national parks and early Disney films. But I think they still sell new Viewmaster reels. The last chapter is called 20 Classic Stocking Stuffers. And I won't go through all these, but just a few. Candy canes, of which Wagoner says, quote, There are lots of better candies, and no one seems to eat them anymore. But somehow, Christmas just wouldn't be the same without them. Unquote. Now there, I have to agree. I really don't like candy canes to eat, but it seems like you need to have them for Christmas. Another one is The Barrel of Monkeys, which came out in 1965. I had several different barrels of monkeys. Well, I guess I had the original as a kid, and then for my kid, when he was much younger, I had a barrel of monkeys that had numbers on them, and you were supposed to learn your numbers by picking up the monkeys in order. 
That was kind of fun. Matchbox cars is another one discussed in this chapter. They were brought out first in 1954 as a British import. Shop owners in England thought they were too small and cheap to appeal to children, but Woolworth disagreed and stocked them and did very well. And then the last one I want to mention is the Wheelow, which came out in 1957. And if you're scratching your head, it's that little red wheel that seems to defy gravity by spinning along the inside and the outside of a little metal track. I never knew what this was called, but we have one in the house right now that was bought recently, like within the last 10 years. So I know they still are making those. Whether they still have the same name or not, I don't know. So the book ends rather abruptly, kind of like her other book I talked about in episode one. It ends with the price of a Viewmaster with a three-reel pack in 1967 was $1.25. That's from a little sidebar on the last page of the book. Anyway, so overall, it's a lot of fun to look through. There's tons of pictures. And it's fun to remember the toys that I enjoyed as a kid. Maybe even some that I forgot, but loved seeing again. Um, I think it's also fun to see the prices and read some interesting historical tidbits about some of the toys. But it's really not an in-depth study. It's just a fun stroll down memory lane. So that's why I gave it an 8 out of 10. It's pretty fun. And again, that was called Under the Tree, The Toys and Treats That Made Christmas Special, 1930 to 1970. Okay, so the last book I want to talk about in this episode is called Pick a Pine Tree by Patricia Toft, illustrated by Jarvis. It was published in 2017, and I gave this a 9 out of 10. I thought it was really fun. So it is a kid's picture book, which for me, the first thing I look at is that it, it has to be beautiful. I mean, it's pictures, so... And I really thought it was beautiful. I love the earthy color palette of greens and browns in this book and the cold blue and white of the winter air. The style of the illustrations reminds me of old 50s golden books. Um, illustrators like Mary Blair, who was a Disney artist who did the art for It's a Small World. The text is rhyming, which I am super picky about because there are so many bad rhyming children's books out there. But this one is really good. There's no weird forced rhymes. And the text really does roll off the tongue. It's fun to read aloud, which is important because parents want to enjoy reading the book to their children. The story is really directions about the transformation of a pine tree into a Christmas tree and all that that entails. First, you have to pick the tree at a tree lot, then decide how you're going to get it home. Quote, lift the tree above your head, bundle it upon your sled, or if you live very far, bring it home atop your car, unquote. I love the description of the decorations. Quote, 
Find the trimmings stored within bulging boxes, rusty tins, paper bags, a wooden case, unquote. And that is so true. Uh, Nobody's Christmas ornaments are ever organized into all the same types of boxes, right? They're all in these different containers and it's part of what makes it fun. So then you invite friends over to help decorate the tree. And one of the final illustrations in the book is a two-page spread of the Christmas tree all decorated and everyone looking at it with wonder. You have to turn the book sideways to see it. And it's always fun for kids when you have to turn the book around to look at it long ways. It's a fun story. It's beautiful art. And it's really about the meaningful ritual of making a Christmas tree. So that's why I gave it a 9 out of 10. Again, that's called Pick a Pine Tree. So that's about it for this episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so now at patreon.com slash christmasbookreview, all one word. If you'd like to recommend a book for me to review... Or if you've written a Christmas book like Alonzo did and you want to send me a copy to review, I can be reached at christmasbookreview at gmail.com. There's now an Instagram, which I mentioned, uh, and that is under the name Christmas Book Review, all one word, where you can see some interesting images from my Christmas reading, like Pitiful Pearl. You got to see Pitiful Pearl. So thanks for listening, and if you want to help me spread the word about this podcast, leave me a review on iTunes, or better yet, tell a friend. Until next time, happy reading. 